0: I didn't understand that building a financial model was like building a prototype. A financial projection is really a prototype for them to say, hey, we don't know if this will be right or wrong. Just because an idea or a startup didn't work doesn't mean that isn't a great leader or a great team. The best teams and the best people probably also had a little bit of never give up mentality. The quest to find mentors is is actually a sign of someone who wants to learn and grow. I don't think you can force that relationship, I think you can lean in on chemistry. Do you have an enjoyment of each other's style? You know, Some people are very warm, some people are very analytical, some people are very juvenile.
1: Welcome to Venture Confidential, a series of interviews with top minds in venture capital. I'm your host, Peter Chapman. In today's episode, I interview Bubba Marocca, an angel investor and previous partner at DFJ. In this episode, we talk about what it means to be an EIR what he learned doing product and business development at Facebook, and how he quickly got up to speed as a partner at DFJ. As always, if you've got questions about Venture Confidential or want to get in touch, email me at vc at heavybit.com. Bubba, welcome to Venture Confidential.
0: Thank you, Peter. I'm excited to be here.
1: It's mutual. I offer all my guests either a coffee or beer, and I notice you're you're drinking neither of those things. Do you want to tell our audience what you're drinking right now?
0: That's an excellent point. I did not get offered a beer before I took this drink. We can go back. Oh, beers are available if you well, want a beer. It's uh, it's good to know we can always renegotiate. All right. The uh, I am drinking a shrub, which is made of a coffee cherry, vinegar, water, and some simple syrup, which I appreciate you buying me. Thank you.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. The first pro tip of this episode is you don't have to get a caffeinated beverage at Sightglass, where I feel like I live these days.
0: Is that are they our sponsor?
1: <sighs> they should be. I've I've spent really a, a disgusting amount of money on Sightglass drinks for our guests. Uh, at this point, they might as well be part of the show. I'm going to just dive right in here because you've got such a storied history. Oh wow! BS and CS spent some time at this at this internal Microsoft almost startup, was an EIR, and and then 2008 you landed Facebook doing business and corporate development. And I think that's where I want to start diving in, because this seems like a really fun time to be at Facebook. It's like the three years leading up to the IPO, so I imagine you're pretty well capitalized, but have less scrutiny than a 2013 Facebook has. What is Facebook like? What is business development like at Facebook in 2008?
0: Yeah, well, it was uh, it was a great time to be there. To your point, and I was very lucky because I got there after failing at getting my startup off the ground. And one of the points of feedback I got from you know kind of the the ecosystem was, you're really great at product and engineering, and you're you're personable, and we want to work with you, but you're a terrible business guy. Hmm. You should work on your business skills. And took me a little while to you know understand exactly what that meant and. It turns out it meant a lot of things, but primarily that I didn't necessarily have the lenses to look through problems at from a business perspective.
1: Um, Wait, sorry, I want to back up. Where's this feedback actually coming from? Are are people telling you this, or just the fact that your startup didn't get off the ground is telling you this? Both.
0: Both. Both. Yeah. No. So I was the CEO of my startup. Mm-hmm. So my job was to make sure the company succeeded. That generally breaks into two or three things. One is have capital to you know pay for things. To have the ability to improve the value of the company Mm -hmm. so that you have more interesting people coming to help you solve the problems you think are important and worth solving. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had recruited a great co-founder. We had been building lots of products, but none of them were getting traction. And therefore we weren't really in a place to either raise capital or recruit employees saying, hey, look at how great this thing is. And we were not from failing to execute and ship product uh, write code or, you know, put together websites or any of those things. But it was rather from coming up with building something that if it worked, it would be valuable mm-hmm. or showing that it worked really quickly in a way that people could get excited about uh, what the possibilities were for it. And okay. So that, you know, ultimately, you know, through direct feedback, when I would try to recruit people or when I would ask, you know, people to give me money to help pay for these experiments and this work, was the direct feedback I got. Well, what could this be? And I'd be I'd show a chart, the canonical series A financial plan, the up and to the right. My up and to the right went to the trillions in three years. Ambitious, I like it. Very ambitious, because yeah. I thought that was the game. It was, yeah. oh, I just have to show up and to the right.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, I didn't understand at that point in time that building a financial model was like building a prototype. I would never invest six months of time as a product manager or as a engineer or uh, or as a... A group leader of those types of functions saying, let's you know build production quality code and invest design resources to build something of high visual uh, quality and polish before we built a prototype and all had conviction that, like, hey, this feature should exist. This is a valuable thing to either ship as a product because it's big enough or ship as a feature that will improve customers' lives. Hmm. And it turns out a customer of you know for a ceo is especially if you want to raise venture capital is venture capitalists and the thing that they are investing in is the size and potential of a business ultimately and so a financial prototype or a financial projection is really a prototype for them to say hey we we don't know if this will be right or wrong but what are the things that could get us to feel comfortable that we understand the variables and that the if this thing works it will You know, create enough value such that we can bring more capital in. You know, it was a very subtle thing to learn because it's the difference between taking something serious and kind of doing something because it's what everyone tells you you're supposed to do.
1: What exactly went wrong in these conversations? What feedback do you get when you show someone a curve that ends at a
0: trillion dollars? I blocked out those memories. You blacked out? Yeah. Yeah, No, it's just sheer panic. No. You know, it would be like, you know, this doesn't seem credible, or how did you come to this assumption? Or hey, maybe you should, you know, kind of consider a more realistic scenario. You know, it was all delivered in either nice ways, but direct, that, you know, it was stinky, or it was, you know, kind of dismissive and like kind of proof that you weren't really, you know, using the investor's time well. And I was lucky enough to have people that cared about me that kept me from doing that very. For very long, but you know, I certainly showed some unrealistic projections, and you know, in truth, a trillion-dollar projection in three years might be in a bit of an exaggeration from you know ten years of life uh, since I looked at those graphs. But they certainly were not realistic.
1: Okay, so you've got this dawning realization that you need to get better at quote business stuff, finances, and, and modeling. How does that lead you to Facebook?
0: That was, I, I guess, not as obvious as I thought it was in my head. Facebook at the time seemed to be the most interesting company at scale. Mm. Now that was opinionated. I had many friends who said, no, you know, it seems like it's as big as it'll ever get. You know, look at where, you know, MySpace is really big. You know, like, is it going to get much bigger? But I had kind of seen three personal things through the journey of trying to build my own company. One of which was I used the Facebook platform in pretty much everything I was doing to either acquire customers, or to quickly get feedback on ideas because I would post it out to my friends, or to try to recruit people. And it was just everything came back to Facebook. And a lot of the people I wanted to work with were going to Facebook as their their option. And so, you know, I had all this signal from my network, my personal day-to-day experiences saying, hey, this Facebook thing is really accruing interesting value, both from a, you know, I'm using it to try to get customers as a startup. I'm using it to learn and grow my ideas and get better at them. And all the most interesting people I really want to work with are also choosing to go there above other things they could be doing. And so that was kind of the signal I had then that you know was, I guess, not the most obvious signal to everyone. Um, and then on top of that, when I went and talked to them, they were very uh, open to the idea of me doing something I had no right to do, which was business development and corporate development. I had never done that role, and... The most natural fit was for me to go somewhere in the engineering or product world. And I was really clear that, hey, the Facebook was a big enough company that I wanted to, to, my motivation for going was to learn something, was to learn a new skill set. Uh, you know, get an MBA on the job. I think I might have even used in one of my interviews, which may or may not have been a good sell, but uh, luckily it didn't sink my battleship. You know, and the alternatives I really looked at were companies that were much smaller, that, uh, I would have, you know, kind of run product and engineering and work with, a business leader, work with the CEO or work with the board of directors and that was how I would absorb business stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought the opportunity to actually do business stuff as opposed to absorb business stuff seemed pretty interesting and the signal I had on Facebook being so interesting of a company because of what it was accruing made the decision fairly straightforward.
1: What was your purview at Facebook? I know you struck up some big partnerships. What was the goal of M&A in business development
0: back in 2008. In 2008, Facebook, I think, I think it was about 100 million, maybe 110 million users when I joined. Okay. So you know, 20x smaller than it is today. And at that time, you know, on the business development side, we had Facebook platform, or they had Facebook platform. They had Facebook advertising, and then they had the core product, uh, Facebook.com. They mm-hmm. I don't even think there was a mobile product then. There might have been, uh, maybe for BlackBerry, actually, if I remember I think hard enough. But you know, the deals for each of those three areas were different, right? And so, on the Facebook uh, platform, it was about finding great app developers, or for app developers that were building products that were very popular, figuring out how to work with them. Hmm. The first project I actually worked on was, you know, kind of with an app developer called Oodle. That took over running the Facebook Marketplace, which was an app that Facebook had originally built in-house, and then said, "Hey, you know what? Now that we have platform, why don't we use the platform and let other companies do this?" But we have all these users using it because we shipped it as Facebook.com, mm. and so someone uh, who'd been at Facebook longer than I had, had worked out the deal with them, and then I was uh, tasked with helping them work and launch and be successful as a, as an opportunity to both learn Facebook as well as uh, my knowledge of the Facebook platform helped me kind of navigate. Some of the issues they were going to encounter. And so that was a great first project to learn from and kind of gave me experience and built on the experience I had from working on a Facebook platform. And that was the kind of things, you know, gaming companies like Zynga and many others were, you know, talked to the team about their needs and were kind of, you know, key customers of the platform and, and ultimately also needed special things from a business level mm-hmm. or at least wanted special things, whether they needed them is up for debate. And then on the Facebook.com side, you know that was really kind of the, the the product integrations. And so over time, it wasn't the first stuff I worked on, but the stuff I got to work on were were things like we need to put maps on Facebook, right? And could we use Google Maps? Should we use Bing Maps? Uh, why or why not? Um, what's the right answer from a product perspective? Okay, if we know what we want to do from a product perspective, what can we get done from a business perspective? And then you know, working with the legal team. On what are the legal constraints? Because we've made a, you know, made a deal with our users and what we're allowed to do with the, their data when we use a third party site or anything like that. Those are all questions. And those were things that gave me broader understanding of how to bring another lens to every problem, right? Like the right product answer it may be an obvious answer to all the product people. The right business answer may be 180 degrees different from that. And then the legal uh, answer might be even another, let's make this 4D space, you know, 283 degrees. Turn from that, and then you have to kind of suss all that out, and then be able to, to synthesize and say, hey, here's the trade-offs. What trade-off do we want to make most? Do we want to make the, the optimize for the product? Do we want to optimize for the business concerns? Do we want to optimize for the legal concerns? And uh, oftentimes that meant going and getting all that information, putting it together, and then getting it super clear, and then presenting it to Mark or Cheryl. And so that like experience, you know, was something I got to do a lot of. You know, whether it was maps or We want to really work with Netflix, and what's a product that we could build that would get Netflix excited? Because they're not excited about, you know, kind of necessarily using just the platform. Mm. They are interested in, you know, can they show movies on Facebook? Is that something we'd want to do?
1: What's an example of a business goal that is antithetical to a product goal? When did that come up for you?
0: A good example of a business goal may actually not be one that was Facebook's business, but maybe the partner's business goal. So. We'll go back to Microsoft. A Microsoft example. I had worked at Microsoft early in my career, and so I, it, it, it made natural sense for me as I got more more credibility and comfort and understanding how to get things done with Facebook for me to start taking over the Microsoft relationship, mm. which was a great opportunity to, to help both sides because I understood how, how Microsoft worked. And you know, I'd worked with Satya Nadella before I left, and then he was the at that time not the CEO of Microsoft, but rather ran Bing. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Microsoft. And that was a big collaboration around specifically web search. Hmm. And so Microsoft really wanted to get web search put on to Facebook.com, right? Much like it was working in parallel at that period of time to power web search on yahoo.com, right? This is their, their their strategy, their business strategy was to say, hey, we may never be as popular as google.com, but we can be everywhere else. Hmm. And so Microsoft's goal were to, you know, to get Facebook to feature web search more, more prominently, more strategically. And that was their business goal. And Facebook was, goal was like, we don't know how to think about this. And it's, we're not sure it's important enough, but we, to think about, but Microsoft is an important partner. Our business need or our business goal is to, to make sure that we are a good partner to Microsoft because they're very strategically important to us. They had recently invested in Facebook. As you know, There was a lot of collaboration on a bunch of areas of interest, but this was one area where there wasn't actually mutual interest as much as it was clearly something Microsoft was a priority for them. And so the business goal was then to go work with the product team saying, hey, what can we do for web search? Hmm. They're like, we don't want to do anything. We, we, we don't have enough engineers to build people search. We don't have enough engineers to fix these thousand bugs that our users have reported. I can't take an engineer... Off of this to, and a product manager off of it, these important user problems mm. to solve a business problem mm-hmm. that isn't a priority right now. Can you ask Microsoft that they can wait a year? Mm. And then, you know, kind of navigating the timeline, resource constraints, and then ultimately when it was the right time to collaborate with them out of, you know, kind of the partnership dynamics and the, the priority to be a good partner to them, it was now, well, they of course want to get as prominent of a place as possible. If they could have a web search box on the middle of the homepage, they would like that. You know, they were never gonna ask for that. But you know, that was the mentality. It was like our our their goal was to get as many searches as possible. And Facebook's goal was not necessarily that. And figuring out again what would be a win for users that, you know, was also serving a business need was interesting. And so ultimately we came up with a solution that was Hey, if you search for something that wasn't some that we didn't think was your name, was hmm. a person's name, mm-hmm. when you hit enter, we would land on a Microsoft powered search results page. I had no idea. Yeah, I don't even know if that feature is available today, but at the time we worked really hard to make that possible and explained why we thought that was a good scenario for our product team, explained why they thought that was the right product experience and said, again, the only trade-off we're making is we wouldn't actually do that today, we would maybe do that in a year or two years or three years. But if it's important from the business to do it today, we think this is a good product experience to ship so we can reorder the the, the roadmap. Let's make sure that Mark, Cheryl, Chris Cox, Shrep, the CTO now. And you know, the, the people that were in charge of these specific priorities for each of these teams all understood that we were making a trade-off. And why? I feel like I'm missing
1: something. Why was it important to Facebook's business to have web search embedded in the product?
0: What, it, it was the business goal for Facebook was t- to maintain a great strategic partnership with ah, Microsoft. Okay. And great. therefore Microsoft was saying our most important business priority for the partnership and our most important product priority for the partnership is to figure out a way to get web search integrated into facebook.com. And so you spend a lot of time saying, well, that's not important to us, so are you sure? Can we do anything else? And at some point, it's you know not a negotiation of like, no, no, this is the only thing. And then you're saying, okay, well then we can change the order of things because of the value of the partnership.
1: I take it you also worked on some M&A stuff when you were at Facebook?
0: I did, I did. And that was a very awesome learning opportunity because M&A can, you know, at the time I was a part of the BD and, and, and corporate development team at, at Facebook, we pioneered an idea called Aqua Hires. This idea that started. You came up with that. I did not come up with that. The team came up with that. I, I, uh, I, I, I actually, the press might have came up with that term more than even anyone internally. But the idea that... It was very important to Mark and the, the, the leadership of the company to keep entrepreneurial drive, to keep product vision and to take risk mm. um, on, on these ideas and to have people that were going to continue to push more of uh, the roots of Facebook, right? which was move fast, break things. You know, mm-hmm. very, very much an uh, entrepreneurial mentality. We're not worried about something going wrong, we're worried about not trying a big enough idea. Which is similar to, I think, how some of the feedback I got from some venture capitalists when I was not quite able to uh, to understand why they may not want to give me capital. Sure. Um, but uh, I digress. The, the whole idea that, hey, just because an idea or a startup didn't work doesn't mean that isn't a great leader, or a great team, a great set of insights that perhaps with Facebook's resources, they could make it work. Or they could take everything and learn the painful way, the hard way, and then grow and have a new hypothesis or a new direction that they want to run in. And so this idea that you could leave your day job, raise you know, 500000 to a million dollars of what would be called seed capital today, at that time people just said early money, mm-hmm. um, or small money, small amount of money, try your idea quickly and then get feedback back to say it's going to work or it's not going to work. What do we do? Created a lot of optionality. For those companies, because now all of a sudden with only a million bucks into them, you know, the idea that you're getting a world class team of people and you have to maybe pay them and then you may have to pay the investors something, uh, but you get a cultural trait of someone who's already proven they want to be an entrepreneur, that they want to kind of move fast and break things, as well as someone that is highly motivated to take everything they've learned and worked hard at and flip it into something bigger. Right. So their motivation, because they, it didn't work. It doesn't necessarily mean that their idea was bad and they know that and you know that. And then finally, you know, you had investors that at the time were clamoring for Facebook shares. Mm. Right. No one knew how big it was ultimately going to get. And that, that turned out to be much bigger than I think many people would have predicted. But that allowed this idea of aqua hires and the buying of a startup and, you know, and it almost got overplayed. Right, like oh, I'll start a company. If it doesn't work, you know, Facebook will buy us, and that was almost a negative repercussion of, uh, of giving people a path just to, to taking the risk to start a company, maybe without really understanding the consequences of how hard it is to start a company, and frankly, how hard it is to even get an acqui hire done, right? Because the the company may or may not decide that you're the right person or the right team. Or you know they may have just done an aqua hire the day before and say like we just got to finish this one and so over time you know you've also seen the pendulum swing back for a little bit of like oh you know aqua hires they're not really you know a thing mm. um, and you know I think at the end of the day there's no constants in you know startups or venture capital or, or even company building when you're on a rocket ship company but rather you know there are these pendulums. What does Facebook look
1: for in an aqua hire?
0: Well, it's been you know almost ten years since I was there in that seat looking at that stuff, so I don't know what they would look for today, but at the time it was really you know exceptional uh, founders mm-hmm. that really could uh, we could have a hypothesis that they could become leaders at Facebook right and have a lot of impact on the trajectory of Facebook's business, ideally in an area that they already knew a lot about. You know, I'm thinking about this from
1: my own sort of limited viewpoint, or we have a pretty fast set of filters we apply to companies, right like are you building a developer tool? Are you between this stage and this stage? This feels like a really broad purview. You know, like good engineers that are possibly great leaders. How do you find those companies? Are they coming to you? Are you actively scouting for potential acquisition targets?
0: Yeah, I think at that point in time, once it became known, it was something that was done. The incentives for the ecosystem were to show the Facebook all of these, mm-hmm. and in fact, it it became much more of a triage situation as opposed to hunting situation that said it was uh, obviously still the the best teams and the best people probably also had a little bit of never give up mentality and so there was outboundness to it but, you know, that was probably because, hey, maybe you knew that person or someone at Facebook knew that person from a previous job or or by reputation for the content they published or the way they use social media or or just from, you know, frankly, their academic work in some cases. You know, I'd say it was it was actually not unlike venture investing, right? Where, you know, there is a larger number of people looking for money and they'll they'll come potentially ask you if you're interested. And, and that could be a very valuable way to find a deal or to to ultimately invest in a company. But maybe sometimes people have an opinion. The, the most interesting deals to consider are the ones you go outbound and you knock on their door saying, Hey, I believe the same things you believe. I believe you are someone that is great and I would like to work with you. Is that possible? What would it take? What would make it a win for you? What would make it a win for us?
1: So you join Facebook looking for this, we'll call it an MBA experience you're learning a lot about different lenses you can apply to problems, right? You're not just thinking about the product side, but you're also thinking about legal repercussions, sort of the business framing. What else is in the Facebook MBA for Bubba?
0: Yeah. I mean, finance and you know, we talked a little bit about financial modeling and just getting to work with the finance team and see how revenue and revenue recognition and all these concepts that, you know, you probably need to be a certified public accountant to truly understand at the level of like being able to legally comply to the IRS rules. Mm -hmm. But very important concepts to understand that can really shape the trajectory of a business or the way you have to capitalize a business or even just the way you want to approach in a negotiation because it might be really important to get money in sooner than later because of some of these issues, or it may not be that important and you may be able to create value. So just learning how the finance team would think about something was valuable. Learning how the marketing and PR teams would think about something. Again, you know uh, the story you can tell, the people you tell that story to initially and how they then t- tell it to the world can really shape the perception of something. Can really shape the the chance of success or failure for a new nascent idea that might be very very scary, right? Like when Facebook started, it was scary the idea that you would put a picture of yourself on the internet or you put your phone number on the internet, right? Nowadays, people don't think about those questions. They think about who has access to those things, but not necessarily the idea of doing it. And I think you know, getting to understand, hey, you know, how do you how do you think about all the the ideas of a of, a, of A communication plan of a go-to-market, of the press outlets you can use, of the story you want to tell, and what the trade-offs are. Because there's no perfect anything. There's only trade-offs. So that was very interesting. Uh, So let's see. We talked about legal. We talked about general business considerations, which I would say really is resource prioritization, right? Like the business trade-offs were really like, what is the most important thing we can do? We we have a lot of problems we could solve. What do we think is the most valuable one to do? The other one was strategy, right? Which is a very amorphous term, and I I, uh, I almost shudder to try to put myself in the position to try to define it. But uh, I'll take my my whack, and that is, you know, again deciding. There's plenty of good opportunities out there. Mm-hmm. Which one is the best one for this company and the resources and the assets we have, and why? And then kind of looking for signals over time as you execute against that strategic framework you've developed to say hey we should do more of this or maybe we're on the wrong strategy for our organization and we need to adjust it and that's a really interesting whole conversation uh, that that can unfold if we want to go there but I do think that just that idea of like you know uh, very tangibly I'd say I remember I was very excited I, I I'll, I'll leave the details a little murky but uh, I found a way to make a hundred million dollars and no one was excited about it that was huh. very a uh, very big moment of development for me uh, in my lenses, because all of a sudden you know it put into perspective. A hundred million dollars is a lot of money, but if the alternative is you can make a billion dollars, right? And there's all the jokes about the, the the movie and you know what's what's cool, a billion. But you know the real trade-offs are when you're when you're a company like Facebook or Google or you know nowadays uh, Airbnb or Pinterest or you have uh, these decisions where you're like we only have so much time in the day. Mm -hmm. We can't do everything, so how do we pick what to do? And Our users are going to dictate a lot of that at the product level, but the reason we have a strategy in a business conversation is to understand sometimes we have to make an investment that isn't as obvious to them, or we have to pick to do some things that they want us, not to do some things that they want us to do.
1: We could probably spend a whole other hour talking about strategy. I'd love the quick and dirty set of heuristics. Was there a framework that you developed, or an approach that you kept applying to these problems.
0: You know, the the nice thing about Facebook was Mark was always very clear that the size of the network, the number of active users of Facebook was the thing that was going to drive the most value for the business. Mm. And so the strategy really could get down to is this going to increase the network or not? Or if we don't do this is this going to give someone a chance to build a network that could be more you know that could take away from our ultimate size of network. And so those questions, you know, that framework was ultimately what it always got down to. And then, you know, the next one was the, you know, kind of metric or the thing that Cheryl defined was like, we are an advertising business and how are we going to make money in the advertising world given, you know, there's lots of ways that advertisers spend today. They spend it on TV, they spend it on print, they spend it on online, and primarily at Google. How do we increase the amount of revenue and the number of people who could potentially want to advertise on Facebook? She was very clear on that, which is also, frankly, a network question, right? What is the size of the advertising network?
1: I want to close the Facebook chapter and fast forward to 2013 when there's a sort of a pivot in your career and you step into investing full time as a partner at DFJ. What led to that jump? Why go into venture at all?
0: Yeah, as a point of context, I would say I grew up in the Silicon Valley and was around uh technology was around uh startups was around even some you know investors venture capitalists you know for as long as i can remember and so i always knew i kind of wanted to do stuff in technology and then kind of startupy stuff but the leap to maybe being you know going away from building products or building companies into investing in them came partially of when I left Microsoft to start a company and I got my first taste of the venture business as an EIR, an entrepreneur in residence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, briefly for those who don't know what an entrepreneur in residence is, it, it, it's really this idea that you spend time in a venture capital firm. You go to some meetings with them to meet some of the companies that they're looking at and give your opinion on them if you're a subject matter expert or sometimes even if you're not a subject matter expert just as someone smart that they they want an opinion from. So it's really an opportunity to get to see a little bit of the VC business from the inside. Mm. You get to hear their discussions. Two, you start working on your own ideas at least if you have the, the goal of starting a company. Some people do an entrepreneur in residence which they'd actually more appropriately call an executive in residence mm. uh, where they're really trying to find their next Big opportunity as a CEO or a COO or, you know, head of global sales. And so they're, they're someone that they know the firm well. They also know themselves well. And so, you know, they add, they add a lot of value because they have subject matter expertise, but they're clearly trying to find the next great company to join. And maybe as part of them joining the venture firm that they're an EIR at, an executive in residence at will also invest in that company. Mm. You know, that, that exposure to starting to start a company to, befriending a bunch of people that were also going through the journey and lending supportive shoulders to each other because uh, many people who've started a company, uh, while it's both the most exciting and can be the most rewarding thing you'll do with your professional career, it can also be the hardest thing Mm -hmm. and and, and is the hardest thing uh, to create something from nothing. You know, on on many levels. And so, you know, I think that cohort of folks I met through the EIR ship, the venture capitalists I saw, the business I learned, put the idea in my head that maybe someday I'll be a VC. Mm. Probably more likely, you know, I'll start a company or maybe I'll do something crazy and start my own venture firm, which is combining both ideas. But uh, along the time while I was at Facebook, you know, I started angel investing, advising companies, just trying to be as helpful as I could to the startup ecosystem because I just felt like they were where I'd come from. And I had so much more respect and revere of people that were putting it all on the line to start companies after having done it myself and and realized how hard it was and how painful it could be. And so, if I could help them in some small way, I always tried to do that. And that led to developing a network, developing a perspective on how to think about companies and opportunities. Ultimately, it led to some interesting startups that I got involved in that you know became valuable in their own right. And you know the experience at Facebook, I had. We talked a lot previously about the business and the reason I went there. But after I got kind of that business learning, I actually flipped back into maybe my native habitat of product management, and actually got to learn mobile. And I I I was able to talk my way into a mobile product manager role um, when I really didn't have any particular skill set there. But found myself in 2010, 2011, you know, and 12, really focusing all my time on mobile. And that was a very interesting time in mobile. Facebook was trying to pivot to mobile. Uh, Android was coming out. The world, it was one of the biggest and is continuing to be one of the biggest secular shifts in platforms ever, right? As we see mobile devices both get attached to more humans than ever before, which then is also getting to get more people on the internet. So now we have more interconnections. And then finally, because of that level of, you know, kind of the number of phones sold and their personal devices, the fact that they're all connected to the internet and the cost of the internet has come down as a result and and people have access to a 24-7 on their body, you have all these new apps that have gotten developed over time that we all now regularly use, whether they're for entertainment or for utility. And ultimately that's eating away at TV and all discretionary time that you know is getting funneled through a mobile device. And, and so getting to be at a point in time where where, where Facebook pivoted from a a desktop web business to a mobile business, gave me a series of insights and a perspective that was very unique. And so all those things combined into the thought process that maybe I should become or try to to, to be a VC, or maybe I should start a company in mobile. Mm. Um, And so I started talking to the network when I was ready to leave Facebook about, hey, I have this idea for starting this mobile company, and it's pretty exciting if I can get the right team together. and. The right unfair advantages, if I was to say it, you know, like besides the insight, besides the, the knowledge I had, but the right people, the right partners interested in investing, all the things that it takes that I now had all these different lenses to say, Hey, you know what? This is, this is a complicated idea. You know, and in short, the idea was, could we build a new mobile carrier? Very crazy, big idea. Uh, something that a lot of people were also equally interested in thinking about at the time. And so it led to a lot of fun conversations. And uh, along the way, people said, you know, you also talk about businesses really nicely now. You, you have this great network from Facebook. You clearly understand product and engineering and you're fun to hang out with. And, you know, we'd love to get to know you better as a human. Mm -hmm. Uh, and some of that ended up with a a very, you know, kind of amazing uh, opportunity to, to join DFJ as an investing partner to also uh, have their support to finish starting this idea this company that I wanted to do and it was like wow I'm getting to do both things I really want to do that's amazing and you know kind of on top of that my mentors the the people I that, that I knew deeply cared about me were also like hey you're interested in this investing thing you might be good at it. You might not, but you've never done it. Why don't you go learn from somewhere great? Why don't you uh, get to see how it's done and see if it's a right fit for you as well? And then, you know, maybe that could be, you know, that's also a nice thing about work, joining somewhere that's like already knows how to do it. It's been in business for 25, 30 years. And so, you know, it all kind of added up to say, Hey, you know what? I'm going to make this leap, even though I have no clue if I'm going to like it. I have no clue if I'm going to be any good at it. I have any number of questions to answer, but it just felt like such a great way to spend time and to learn something new, and to get to, uh, to be a part of the ecosystem in a whole new way. I want to go down a, a brief tangent here. This is the second time you've mentioned the,
1: the Bubba Council of Elders. <laughs> Who are these mentors?
0: That's funny, yeah. I think the first time was when we were walking around before we were on the microphone. But yes, uh, mentors have played a big part in my life. Um, so some of the people that have been really impactful in my life, one I'll, I'll, I'll start with is, uh, is a gentleman named Blake Irving. He most recently was CEO of GoDaddy, was a VP at Microsoft when I first met him. He became Mm -hmm. my mentor, and more importantly, he became my friend there. We had a very funny life coincidence where he lived in San Luis Obispo, which is where I went to school. And When I left Microsoft the first time, uh, I left Microsoft, and I ended up rejoining. There's a longer aside there that we can talk about. But I went back to San Luis Obispo to finish my masters. Mm. And so he and I got to spend time together and just kind of you know really became uh, you know a, a great positive impact in my life and was also very thoughtful about, hey, you know what? You're very driven. You're very capable of a lot of things, but also you want to season yourself. You want to be ready for big challenges and, and know that they're how you want to spend your time because they're not going to be easy. Mm. Um, and so, you know, he was a a great example of someone who, you know, said, Hey, you've never been an investor. You know, do you want to, to think about it or learn about more of it before you commit to it? And I thought that was a great point of view.
1: I'd love to dive a little bit deeper here because the, the quest for mentorship seems to be a big theme for people in this business. How did you go about cultivating that relationship?
0: The quest to find mentors is is actually a sign of someone who wants to learn and grow. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes up a lot of the DNA of the Silicon Valley, right? And there's a culture of forgiveness. If you try an idea and it doesn't work, it's not your fault. Mm. It's what did you learn from it, right? And so it's not even a culture of forgiveness as much as it is a culture of curiosity. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think part of that curiosity then gets people to seek out mentors and and say, hey, you've done something that I think I might want to do someday, Um, and can I learn from you about it? And then if there's chemistry, which is ultimately, you know, to answer the second question, how do you cultivate a relationship, I, think, I, don't, I don't think you can force that relationship. I think you can lean in on chemistry. You can say, hey, you know what, uh, the way I think and then the words I choose to express the way I think match the way this person would choose to express that idea that is in their brain. And it's an imperfect transfer of knowledge because we have to take ideas and make them into words. But the words I choose and the words they hear or the way then they react to those words with their own is very helpful to me. And that's chemistry, right? It's, it's, there's a, there's a communication shortcut. There's hmm. a, there's a, a secret code, so to speak. Uh, not that we're using secret language, but rather that our brains maybe have some commonality in, in the way they decipher or encode information. Uh, and then there's obviously the other part of chemistry, which is like, you know do you have a, a natural style uh, you know kind of a, an enjoyment of each other's style you know some people are are very warm some people are very analytical some people are uh very jovial uh some people are very juvenile i happen to be all of those um <laughs> sometimes uh mostly when i'm with my children but the people you know the style side the you know the ui so to speak, of someone. And the the way your UI interacts with another person's UI is the other element of of chemistry, which maybe is less substance and more intuitive. And that's actually a risk, right? That can can lead to people seeking out people that are like themselves or that have similar interests or reinforcing preconceived notions. And that's actually something, as a community, as an ecosystem, we're grappling with right now on a lot of different levels, uh, which is a heavier, longer conversation than maybe today, uh, but certainly something that I think a lot of people, including myself, are reflecting on Um, but once you have kind of identified maybe that chemistry as I try to define it I think it's about making it important it's about saying hey I really think I can learn from you and uh, I'm going to make it really easy for you to teach me you know I'll show up where's easy for you to meet you know the thing we talked about last time Hey, I I acted on it or I decided not to act on it, and I'm not scared to tell you that because I know you respect me and you're not telling me things because you you're my manager. You're telling me things because you're trying to help me figure it out for myself and my formula is going to be different than yours. And so, you know, it's not it's it's not so, you know, cultivate has a a calculating word to it, and I think there's something much more organic to great mentorship that I do really think it's if you're looking for a mentor, talk to as many people as you can. Until you find a mentor. <laughs> right? And then, Simple. you know, it's, 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 it, and, and you and they will know it when you're like, I don't want to talk to anyone else. I want to ask this person the question. I
1: think, I think what you're telling me is that finding a mentor is analogous to falling in love.
0: I think many things in life are analogous to falling in love.
1: It's an organic process. You just got to take a bunch of swings at the bat and, and you'll know it when you have it. I like it. Okay. Well, let's go back to DFJ. It's your first job as a professional investor. And and I love this. You've like vaulted into one of the best firms out there. What is that entry like?
0: Oh, man. It was a steep curve. You know, all of a sudden I was uh, in a whole new part of the ocean I'd never been in before. I had obviously spent a lot of time with them uh, before I joined, looking at deals, talking about philosophy, sharing everything I could about, you know, my working style, getting to understand their working style. But it turns out a venture capital firm is a business, and it also has a bunch of unique terms of art, characteristics, patterns, uh, rhythms, processes that I had zero familiarity with, and so that was a you know deep dive of just you know kind of information and just like being in meetings and saying what does that term mean? Uh, why is everyone? Opening to this page of this packet of information. Why? Like, how did you all know that was the thing we were going to talk about next? And it's, that's the pattern of the meeting. Or, you know, just like you know, as a product manager, you know, you quickly get in the habit of like, okay, whatever our issue tracking or bug tracking system is, every day I look at it. Uh-huh. Right? Uh huh. Right. As a VC, there's a set of information you want to look at every day. What is um, that? Oftentimes, it's you know the news about your existing portfolio companies, the news about kind of areas of interest that you're trying to learn about and then you know kind of finally you're also looking at public markets right and you know saying hey you know ultimately like the public markets do impact the private markets and you know those are those are all things that you know you may want to start your day with Or at least make sure you have a good grasp on every day. So you understand, you know, kind of the mentality, you know, if a company is thinking about going public and, you know, a bunch of companies have just gone public positively, that might mean there's more interest at that when you're talking about the company to do it. If a bunch of companies have failed to go public recently, there might be more resistance to that idea. And and that might change what you think your opinion should be on the right answer for the company. Cause as a board member, you know, you don't get to make the decision the CEO does, but you get to help hopefully shape that decision by sharing your point of view and the data you have. And so those you know you never know when you're going to have one of those conversations. And then you know kind of the final you know you know like not surprising venture capital information you're looking at is also uh, the performance of the fund, the status of the you know kind of money that's coming in to invest in companies, just there's a variety of you know operational details that maybe you don't have to look at daily, but it certainly weekly is is wise to look at. But all those things uh, were new, and getting on that fire hose was, was was or that that getting up that curve was 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 just that was tactically just so I knew which way was north. Uh, I, I had a joke. Uh, it took me about a year to find out where the bathrooms were. Mm-hmm. It was a uh, metaphorical bathroom, so to speak, right? Just kind of getting comfortable with the way the business operated. So that was new because I never really made such a big leap. You know, the second was just getting now used to the work, right? You, you, uh, ultimately, as a venture capitalist, as an investor in early stage technology companies, a large part of your job is meeting new companies, mm-hmm. learning new things, assessing teams, assessing opportunities. Figuring out if there's a pattern you're starting to maybe detect that maybe the world hasn't detected that's unique. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about how I detected maybe a pattern around Facebook, uh, based on, you know, being in the ecosystem and seeing the people that were going there and realizing it was at the core. You know, that that was a good hint to me and and ultimately worked out that it was a very valuable, interesting company to be a part of. You know, investors are looking for that kind of signal on a much smaller scale with companies that are much younger. You know that's almost a, a learn by doing thing. You have to meet. You know sometimes there's a idea that you have to meet a thousand companies before you know what you're doing as a venture capitalist. It's, sure, is something someone told me once, and something else said. Someone else told me the exact opposite, which is like invest in the first company you have conviction in, because at some point there's always reason not to invest in any company. Hmm. And your judgment and your thought processes that you've developed over a career over a lifetime are what are going to make you unique as an investor or not. Now. Don't if you have obvious reasons not to make the investment. That's why you have partners. That's why you talk about it with people you trust uh, before you make your first bet. But at the end of the day, don't make your first bet uh, too late because then everything then doesn't look that good. And um, part of the job is learned by doing. Um, when did you make your first bet? I made my first investment relatively quickly after joining DFJ. I would say within the first six months of being there, it was a company called MathCamp. It was a product called Highlight, but they built a location-based social network. Oh yeah! And that was uh, one of those insights that I had from Facebook. Was hey, I, I think there are opportunities for additional social networks. Location feels like one where there there will be one that exists. And Highlight, the founder, a gentleman named Paul Davison was a great storyteller, had built this very compelling product that had taken off at South by Southwest and then Mm -hmm. didn't sustain that takeoff, but had shown the ability to build something great and interesting and unique that people would get excited and interested in. And so I took a a a very high-risk bet on a pre-traction consumer mobile app startup company, but in an area that I had, hey, if this worked, it would be very valuable. Ultimately, you know, I learned a lot through that and have, uh, look at that experience as such a great formative opportunity to, to learn how to be a VC, whether it was to learn how to even negotiate a venture capital term sheet. Mm. Um, which was, you know, I was doing with the help of my partners, but I I had never done before. And, you know, I I remember a moment where, uh, Paul and I, I had to call Paul and I, I I said, you have a convertible note. I don't know how that's going to work. Do you know how it's going to work? Beautiful, and and he was a first time founder, and he said, "I'm not sure. I'll call my lawyers," and I think that might be a new one for both VCs and founders to a founder to find themselves having a conversation about. But you know, it was a great example of you know even just the approach to take, and you know, kind of being curious and uh, understanding the idea of does a convertible note convert into the pre money or the post money. Uh, of a deal and how that affects my ownership as the investor or the dilution for the founders' perspective. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And so you know those kinds of lessons are uh, almost comical to share as we're we're having a nice laugh right now about it. But you know at the time that uh, was a great honor to be allowed to negotiate something on behalf of DFJ to be entrusted with that and then to have a you know my first deal be a founder that was. Equally committed to working together and not to solve things that we know that wasn't into bluster and wasn't into, you know, kind of gamemanship. It was rather like, yeah, we don't know the answer to that. Let's go get. And then for us to be able to talk very openly, this is a financial negotiation. At the end of the day, and obviously, my goal is to get as low as possible. Your goal is to get it as high as possible. How do we want to solve it? And we just, you know, did the most classic, I think, human instinct in those situations, which was to split the difference, um, if I remember correctly. Although maybe Paul will hear this podcast and chime in in a comment telling me uh, something completely different or telling us all something completely different, but that's how I recall it.
1: So, a lot of year one for you is just sort of figuring out the mechanics, like the structure of venture, the, the vocabulary of it. What are some of the things that shifted for you in that first year?
0: The other thing that I really learned in the first year was consumer product investing was very is a very difficult sector to invest in. That's where I made my career. I had tried to do startups in that space, and uh, ultimately, you know, the the thing that makes consumer investing so appealing to uh, many people is, um, or to investors in broad, is the amount of value that can be created. Right? Look at, you know companies that have consumers or individuals as customers have you know potential billions of customers mm. businesses that have you know companies that have businesses as customers may have tens of thousands millions maybe tens of millions and then the off chance you know maybe there's you know hundreds of millions but it's definitely never probably going to get into the billions and so you know then the the value that can be created in a, in a in a company that that attracts a lot of consumer interest or has a lot of consumers ultimately can be so high and so fast that it really attracts a lot of capital um, Mm. and also becomes very hard to know what will work until it starts to work. And at that point, then you're in a different game, which is the companies that are working, you're now trying to get the right to invest because lots of people want to invest in them. And so then it's about the conviction of, like, I think this company will be worth so much, I'm willing to pay this price to invest. And the market figures out the right auction price for a company. But you know the downside of that is you never know how consumer sentiment may change or how things will play out in the long run, and so it's a higher risk reward no matter where you enter into the the point of consumer. and And that lesson was really interesting to me, um, and my curiosity and my interest and in all these lenses that it had accrued over my career from these different experiences, some intentionally, some the hard way. I uh, I realized I was like you know I I, I think uh, I really like want to have a broader Perview of investment areas and and learn new not just invest in consumer and so that was a big learning and a and a big thing to start to discover and and ultimately led me to invest in my second company uh, which is a heavy bit company called Circle CI. Um, Great choice, and that was actually the thesis at the time was I invest in founders named Paul. <laughs> um, so I had Paul Davison uh, at, at Highlight Math Camp, and mm-hmm. I had Paul Bigger mm-hmm. uh, at CircleCI. CI. And you know, the interesting thing there was that was a B two B company, but it was uh, selling to developers, and you know, like all like all the companies that had, you know, kind of something that I'd come up, you know, as an engineer at least. I knew how to write code. Maybe it's uh, aggrandizing myself to call myself an engineer. But I understood uh, from my time at, at, at Facebook how writing code and building products and shipping software was just changing fundamentally. And I remember being terrified of the way Facebook shipped code when I got there from my Microsoft experience, right? Which was a waterfall methodology. It would take. 60 to 90 days for your checked in code to appear in a gold build of Windows because it had to go through so much rigor and it made sense, right? The breaking something in Windows was, was, was very offensive. Sure. (laughs) Uh, it could be very dramatically negative for the company. And so they had to put that level of rigor in. But, you know, that was the, the context I came from. And not every team was like that, but, you know, uh, Facebook was, you know, our goal is to have you ship code on your first day or your first week, fix a bug, you know, and it was just a a much faster uh, pace, but more importantly, a much different kind of infrastructure to ship code at that rate, and and that Circle CI was basically making that as a platform, making that as a service for any company that that wanted to do that. Um, and so I got really excited about hey the secret I learned at Facebook this this new way of writing code this new way of you know kind of increasing your velocity of software development of working uh, as a software company um, or working as any company that had to write software could just be made easy and they we have a whole team at Facebook working on it and CircleCI is like outsourcing that for any company that wants to do this. And so that got me really excited. And then, you know, the at the time the momentum and the the people around the table, uh, I had great respect and and admiration for the seed investors in in, in Circle CI, Steve Anderson and Michael Dearing, and. Another heavy hitter, uh, Jesse Robbins was an advisor, and, mm-hmm. and Jesse uh, also started a company that DFJ had backed earlier called Chef, mm-hmm. um, which was also in some somewhat of an adjacent. You know, how do you increase the velocity of software development? You know, that much more from an operational infrastructure point of view, um, maybe a little less from the de- pure individual developer productivity, uh, but rather from an automation of infrastructure and and uh, data centers. Although they also now have CI and CD components that they fulfill. So like any good big opportunity, lots of different ways to enter into it. But, uh, got me excited and, 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 and my partnership, the DFJ partnership was very comfortable and familiar with SaaS businesses after having invested in a bunch of SaaS companies. Um, some very iconic ones, of course, uh, like, uh, Box and, and, and Twilio. And, and so it was, a, it was a, it was a great way to get to invest in an area that I would have never predicted I would have invested in. If you'd asked me the day I became a VC, or if you'd asked me any day before that, you hmm. know. But it, it's been such a, a wonderful way to learn about a whole different set of things, and uh, and I think the intellectual curiosity and the journey of a of a startup there are uh, some similarities regardless of the sector.
1: I ask everyone the same closing question, which is, "What do you wish you knew going into this?"
0: It's a great question that bears some reflection, and I reflected for a bit on it before. And so I think if I had to answer it now, at least for this moment in time, I'd say the questions you ask an entrepreneur are the most valuable thing you can think about ahead of a meeting, during a meeting and after a meeting.
1: Ooh, that's it's so juicy and I'd love to get a little bit explicit. Sure. Like what is a question that that you weren't asking when you first became a partner that you now ask consistently?
0: So, I think the question that I ask more explicitly and routinely now is, what are the things that you don't control that could help you or hurt you? Because that tells you so much about how much the entrepreneurs thought about the things that are out of their control versus in their control and then also gives you an insight into their the way they're going to allocate their resources.
1: Bubba, thank you
0: so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Peter. This is fun. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Where can our listeners find you? Uh, I have uh, a very easy Twitter handle to follow, it's at Bubba, B-U-B-B-A. I also have a relatively easy website, it's Bubba.vc, mm. and uh, I'm pretty sure if you search the internet for Bubba, you will find me quickly.
1: And who should be getting in touch with you?
0: Uh, I love helping startups. So anyone that's on the journey of trying to create something uh, new, I'd love to hear from. Uh, I tend to spend... the the time and be most helpful in companies that have already built a product and have started to bring it to market, but maybe don't have traction. Uh, I obviously have an interest in developer-facing technology. Uh, I would maybe frame it as software velocity, but you know we could call it developer tools or DevOps. Uh, and I uh, I love things uh, that are consumer-oriented. You know whether it's a software product, uh, a physical consumer product, or even just something that helps people that do those two things better. Thanks for listening to this episode of Venture Confidential. Venture Confidential
1: is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out our library, home to great educational talks by top investors, entrepreneurs, and other
0: industry leaders.